0: Good morning again on this March the 4th, 2022, as we march forth as Christians into the world that God so loves. Um, thank you for spending a little time with me, sharing your time with me today. My name is Carmen LaBurge. I am the host of this program, cleverly called Mornings with Carmen. And uh, this is the Faith Radio Network. So if you've never downloaded the Faith Radio app, let me invite you to do so, because then you can take me with you everywhere you go. And I would like to go where you're going on this March the 4th. You should let me know. Where are we marching forth today? Uh, you can text me at 877-933-2484. Tell me where I am right now marching forth with you. That would be fun. 877-933-2484. On my mind today, I actually marched forth on March the 3rd. You did. Yes. And so I'm in studio today with my producer, Paul Perot,
1: And it's, it's weird. I mean, usually she's in her little <laughs> studio down in Tennessee. I'm here all alone. Now it's a party.
0: Uh, It's totally a party. So um, I marched forth on March the 3rd because I came to town to participate in the Set Apart Conference at the University of Northwestern St. Paul. Um, You uh, can check it out, uh, setapartconference.com. And my uh, workshop, I thought I would just, well, I would just give you a little tasty preview here at the open um, of this conversation. So my uh, workshop assignment, which I chose to accept was to talk about the Great Commission as we live it out in every area of life. And so I have been uh, studying the Great Commission of Christ to the church. You probably think of it first, when I say Great Commission, you probably think of it first from the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, That's where he includes it at the conclusion of his Gospel, and it goes like this. All authority, this is Jesus speaking, last recorded words of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew before his ascension into heaven. All right. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the very end of the age. So that's the Great Commission. So um, what makes it great is that it's, Jesus issuing it. Um, And so uh, it is also great because it's totally comprehensive. What makes it a commission? Well, we should stop and ask ourselves, what is a commission? Two ways to hear that word. Actually, probably more than two ways to hear that word. Um, When you hear the word commission, you could think of it as a noun or as a verb. So a commission is an instruction, this is from Merriam-Webster, by the way, I didn't make this up, an instruction, command, or duty given to a person or a group of people. So that's how we have come to think about the Great Commission, Christ's instruction, Christ's command, the duty that we have to him as we carry out uh, his instruction and his command. So that is the Great Commission as a noun. There's another way to think of a Great Commission as a noun, and it's actually the group of people, who are officially charged with a particular function. So we are the great commission. I know, mind-blowing, right? We are the commission, the people commissioned by Christ to go and do this great commission. Have you thought about yourself that way? Like, uh, we are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. We are the great commission of God's people, yes, on a mission. What kind of mission? A co-mission, a mission with Christ. I know, mind-blowing, right? All right, so that's uh, when we then consider commission as a verb. Think of commission, think of a commission, a person um, being commissioned to do something, to bring something into reality. The commission being the act of bringing the work about. So here I might use um, the commissioning of a painting as an example, the commissioning of a work of art. Uh, It is the commission to then bring the work of art about. So the Lord our God has commissioned a work to be produced in and through his people who are the great commission. And that commission is like literally putting the kingdom into our hands um, that we might bring it forth, That his will might be done and his kingdom might come on earth as it is in heaven. That is amazing to spend a little time thinking about. So how are you and I practically doing that today? Jim Dennison, who was on earlier this week, asked the question, like, what's your personal strategy uh, to carry out Acts 1-8? Well, that's also a place, it's where Luke uh, talks about the Great Commission. And so I asked that question. What is your personal strategy today for carrying out the great commission of Jesus Christ um, as a co-missionary with Christ on mission for Christ to produce that which God has commissioned? To produce this work, this visible, beautiful demonstration of the gospel in the world that others might come to know. Um, so I love being on commission with you. You and I who are in Christ are on co-mission with one another. We are co-missionaries with Christ and with one another. Uh, that's who we are. So let's get to it. March 4th. Adam Holtz is up next from Focus on the Families plugged in. We're gonna start with a movie review called The Batman. We'll be right back. Conversation now is Adam Holtz from Focus on the Families plugged in. And Adam, we got to do a quick um, uh, ge- geographical survey uh, of where where everyone is marching forth. And yes. where, so where we are. So you are in Colorado Springs. I am in St. Paul or Roseville, Minnesota. We have a friend checking in from Rapid City on their way, uh, headed to work at a Christian school. Carol is checking in from Ashland, Ohio. Uh, Kim checking in, um, marching forth. Well, driving, uh, driving uh, just outside the studio this morning. Good morning. Um, We have a friend marching forth in Atlanta. We got a friend here marching forth um, to a friend's house. Oh, to participate in a Bible study. Loving that. People marching forth all over the place. All right, uh, so as you march forth, Jim marching forth in Connecticut. Yes, I'm not I'm not missing you. I can see you all out there. Thank you. Um, I will continue accounting for where you are advancing the kingdom. Um, Adam Holtz is advancing the kingdom in Colorado Springs and online at PluggedIn.com, bringing us today a review of The Batman.
2: The Batman. It's just fun to say. It is, and I mean, here's the thing. If you have been... Laying awake at night, hoping <laughs> against hope that they would restart the Batman story again with Robert Pattinson, my personal favorite sparkly vampire from Twilight, not really sarcasm alert uh well, he's from Twilight, but he's not my favorite vampire um your Your hopes have been fulfilled this day, so uh we have the Batman they're running into the same problem that the fast and furious. Uh, franchise has is that they have to start using specific parts of speech to set their titles apart. Uh, Anyway, I'm going to actually park my snark now and give you a real review. Uh, The Batman does indeed sort of retell Batman's story. It doesn't go as deep into the origin story as some versions of the movie have done, but it's it's a do-over. And this one is interesting for several reasons. If you've seen the trailer, you know that it looks pretty dark and the Batman's nemesis here is the Riddler, and the Riddler is looking to clean up the streets of Gotham, for real. He um, has been the victim of corruption and injustice in the police force, and so he is systematically essentially executing Corrupt cops and corrupt city officials, including the mayor. Um, and he thinks he's on a righteous sort of Old Testament ish kind of crusade. And a couple of things that he says actually sound like something that could be in the Old Testament as he, you know, sort of unleashes his idea of justice. <clears throat> Batman, too, is interested in pursuing justice. However, he is not an agent of vengeance, at least in the mortal sense. He certainly gives. Some uh, run-of-the-mill criminals, a pretty good beat down physically. But uh, at one point, one of his uh, compatriots has a chance to take somebody's life in retribution. And he basically stops her and says, if you cross that line, there's no coming back from it. Um, So there's an interesting sort of almost old-fashioned sense of restraint in a movie that is as dark as anything you're going to see in the Batman canon, um, it, uh, it reminded me a lot of David Fincher's movie Seven. Um, it reminded me, weirdly enough, of uh, Chinatown from, I think, 1973 or 74. And it is much more of a detective and gangster movie than it is a Superman movie. Um, so you've got a lot of violence, a lot of profanity, And then the last thing I want to say about it is it ends on a surprisingly redemptive and hopeful note where uh, Batman is talking with Selina Kyle, who, of course, is Catwoman. And she basically says, what's the point? Why why even try to establish justice? Why even go after the bad guys when they're just going to keep coming? And Batman says, I have to try. Mm -hmm. And he says that it's about hope. He actually uses the word hope. And so it's not – even though it's a very dark movie – uh, DC has really flirted. DC Comics and Warner Brothers have really flirted with nihilism in the last several movies they've done. Wonder Woman, maybe a little bit, notwithstanding. Um, this one feels kind of old-fashioned. Yeah, it's it's dark out there, but we're going to do our part to try to do the right thing. So, um, not a movie for kids. This is a this is a violent movie. A lot of profanity. So that's what you need to know.
0: All right. um, We appreciate that. Uh, We had a question last week and I'm going to ask you to answer it um, when we come back from a very brief break. Adam, Um, we we have folks who like think about everything that you consume in media and they wonder, they wonder, like, how does Adam watch all that? And like, do you have some sort of method of like purging your heart Uh and mind? So can we talk? Yeah. Can we talk about that when we come back?
2: Absolutely, and I have an answer ready to go, so let's talk about it.
0: Awesome. So we're talking with Adam Holtz from Focus on the Families, plugged in. When you consume media that you know is is contrary to the Spirit of Christ, like, what do you do with that in your heart and mind? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. As we are marching forth on this March the 4th, uh, greetings to Jim, who is apparently marching forth in Costco is somewhere in Connecticut, um, Piran is marching forth in Ontario, Canada. People marching forth all over the place. Um, I, I just uh, I love the way God has His witnesses uh, all over the world. So thank you so much for joining us on Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge here with Adam Holtz from Focus on the Families Plugged In, teeing up a question that um, that you asked last week of Adam, and I didn't get to ask him directly. So Adam, here it is. You. Uh, you consume a lot of media. Not all of it is good. Um, And so what do you do with that as a believer?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So I'm going to talk about that, I'm assuming, in relationship to the work we're doing here at Plugged In, not just as watching stuff because you want to. Right. Um, I think, first of all, everybody in our team has a sense of, uh, this is something that they have a sense of calling to. And I don't want to over-spiritualize it, but but that's a good starting place. We've had people go through the application process and get down the road a little ways and realize, you know what, I don't want to do this. So there has to be a basic understanding of, okay, I'm I'm willing to do this and I have an interest in this part of culture. So that's number one. Number two, with really hard stuff, we will, not every time, but fairly regularly, we will pray before and sometimes after we see something. So There's a recognition that we don't do this on our own, but that this is something that we have a sense of calling to, and and God is helping us do that, and we express that independence to Him on prayer. The third thing that you might not think about, um, but I think is, is really significant, is that when we go to movies, I personally have a little flashlight in a notebook, and I will take 50 to 75 pages of notes during the course of a movie so i literally never stop writing and that makes it a much more clinical experience i think what we do is is close in some ways almost to sociology or anthropology we're observing what's going on in the culture now that doesn't mean that those images don't go in and we don't see them but when you are sitting there writing about it it turns it into a different experience and it does make it a very clinical experience. Um, And in that way, you know, various doctors see things that the rest of us don't see too. Uh, It's, I would say there's some broad similarities there Um, with everything that we review. If we have an assignment to one of our reviewers that they are uncomfortable with, there's always freedom to come and say, I don't, I don't want to do that. And yeah, I don't even need an explanation. And it doesn't happen very often, but sometimes we have that happen where someone says, Yeah, I, I don't want to I don't want to tackle that one. And so there's freedom to do that. Uh and then in a, a weird paradoxical way, <laughs> and this is gonna sound funny, we process so much garbage that the garbage is always flowing. Um people ask me what movies I've seen recently. I usually have to get the website out to even remember Mm -hmm. because because we're processing it so quickly. um, You know, uh, we publish about 30 pieces of content a week. There isn't really time for stuff to like really take root. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, for all of that, we recognize that um, this stuff is real. It's coming at us. It has the ability to affect us. And so I think just ongoing conversations, too, that we have may be one of the most significant things is, as we talk through things. And, and we have different areas that we don't like. I have one staff person who doesn't want to really engage with demonic, spiritually oriented stuff. So we might think about sexuality being you know the huge one that, that many of us, uh, that many people have struggled with. But there are other areas. I personally don't like jump scenes. Um, because they make my chest hurt. <laughs> I don't know what and that. Front, I don't
0: even know what a jump scene is.
2: Uh, a jump oh, scene is like, like the things a, that make you jump. Yeah, in a horror oh. movie mm-hmm. uh, or jump scares. Um, and so, those are just a couple of examples. And so, I think um, with all of that, I can honestly look people in the eye and say, after almost twenty years in this job, I don't have anything that has stayed with me in a way that I can obviously point to and say. Oh man, I really stumbled hard over this. Now, I can pull up the five or six worst movies I've ever seen, um, but um, and I remember some of those scenes. <clears throat> excuse me, um, but I, they don't. I'm not stumbling over them. You know, they're not constantly there in my head. So um, all of that is in the mix, and I'm sure that there are probably people out there who would say yeah, okay, that all sounds like a really spiritual rationalization for watching nasty things. But I think that we also think about Nehemiah on the wall being a watchman for what's coming. And I think that would be the the biblical reference to what we're talking about here is that God calls some people to be watchers. And even as we're watching, we have to be careful doing that.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think um, uh, someone has likened it to... Uh... Medical professionals, or missionaries, or even members of the military who right. are exposed to things, and you—you you have to just keep moving. Um, right. And then periodically, uh, right. and I guess I'm wondering this of you as well. Periodically, do you like ask the Holy Spirit to purge what needs to be purged? Like, you know, uh, do what only the Holy Spirit can do to restore peace if there's, um, you know, if there's content that that is in your heart or mind that you know, you know, you just want to be rid of. And the only way to get rid of it is for the Holy Spirit to do that.
2: No, that's right. And I don't know that I have phrased it like that, but I think encouraging our staff to regularly take time to get away, to attend to our souls. And I think Hmm. even apart from um, nasty content, I think the constancy of content that we get, through our screens is a different spiritual threat because we, became, we become conditioned to always wanting that stimulation and always needing to be engaged and, um, and our brains respond to that with dopamine. We can talk some other time about that and we have talked about it in the past, but I think that's a, a parallel threat is that mm. we just become conditioned to being stimulated by entertainment all the time. And our brains don't know what to do without it. So um, that is something that I find myself far more aware of maybe than the nasty content. Um, And and I will say just the last thing here. It's a weird job because you have to have a certain level of desensitization to be able to watch what we watch. Sure. Um, But we also really work on cultivating the sensitivity to see what we need to see, but not to dwell there. So. Um, not a job for everyone. We just had a candidate say, you know, after further prayer, I don't want to do this job. And I, and I, absolutely applaud somebody for saying that.
0: So, Adam, we have a number of listeners who are just simply saying thank you. Um, we appreciate oh. Adam's ability to filter for us. I'm thankful he is doing this because someone's got to do it and I don't want to do it. Um, and then uh, Richard's saying, could we just stop right now and pray for everyone at plugged in?" So we're going to do oh. that as, we, um, as we thank you for being here today.
2: And, and Carmen, yeah. can I just say, we have four other people on our team, and I personally am probably exposed to less stuff these days, than our four reviewers who are reviewing stuff every single day. So um, definitely, let's pray for the whole team.
0: Let's do it. Father, we thank you for um, the team at Focus on the Families Plugged In. We ask you to take every thought captive to Christ. Um, We ask that you would protect their hearts and minds, even as they do this good work to which you have called them as watchers on the cultural wall. Bless them, we pray. Um, Thank you that they go forth today to extend the gospel in all ways, not only through reviews, um, but through all of the ways that they uh, help us see the things worthy of our time and attention, even as they warn us against that which is not. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, you guys can find great content right now at PluggedIn.com. One of my favorite things um, is this YouTube list of chefs, super family-friendly Sadly, Tasty Tuesdays are Cooking with Carmen. Not on there because I don't have a YouTube channel. But if I did, I bet Plugged In would list it. There's still time. There's still time. Yeah, There's still time. (laughs) Hey, Adam Holtz, as always, thank you so much. You guys can check out what Adam is working on and his team at PluggedIn.com. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. People often ask, like, how do I uh, choose the books that we talk about? Sometimes it's as simple as that is an amazing title and I want to read it. Uh, which is what happened when I saw this book, What are Christians for? Life together at the end of the world. Jake Metter up next. It's
1: like the prize
0: All right, I um I love the website Mere Orthodoxy, M E R E Orthodoxy dot com. Jake Metter is the editor in chief of Mere Orthodoxy. It's an online magazine that covers the Christian faith in the public sphere. Um he has uh he has a great perspective. It is a well informed perspective. It's also a Lincoln Nebraska perspective, and you know me, I like me some middle America. So Jake, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. The new book is great. What are Christians for? Life together at the end of the world.
1: Hi, thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be
0: here. So talk with us about Christian social doctrine, because yeah. that that might be lingo people are not familiar with, but it's a pretty basic idea.
1: Yeah, the idea is just the question of how does Christian faith, Christian ideas, Christian doctrine apply to the life that we have amongst our neighbors, also amongst our church members. Um, And how does it change our interactions with people? How does it guide us toward the truth? How does it arrange our life together in delightful ways? Um, The Catholics have a very well-developed body of social doctrine. Um, and the Protestants kind of tried to get stuff going in the late 1800s and it kind of petered out in the early 1900s. So this book was, especially when I was first sitting down to write it, kind of my attempt to try and revive some of that stuff.
0: Okay, so let's talk about that. Let's talk about going back to a starting point. And um, the starting point that you return us to is nature itself. So um, how I think about nature is largely informed by modernity um, and even mm-hmm. now postmodernity. But you want us to recapture a Christian understanding or a Christian account of nature. So let's start there.
1: Yeah. So I think the idea that all of us in the church and outside the church, really just because of how culture shapes us, the idea we grow up with is that the world and nature, um, I've heard Joe Rigney describe it this way, and I like it, Um, the world is like Plato. And so I can shape the Plato however I want, um, within kind of my domain of influence, my power, and you can shape the Plato how you want to whatever degree you have power. And so politics, life together, all of these things really become a kind of zero sum struggle over who gets to shape the Plato. And I think we see the fruit of that right now is that there's, a. Uh, very high emotional weight put on politics, Um, and we ask politics to kind of function as religion almost, which it's just not able to do. It's not what it's meant to do. And so what I'm trying to do instead is return to the idea of nature as this, um, I think it's Benedict who said this, uh, the product of a plan of love and truth. Um, That's Pope Benedict. Um, The idea is that for Christians, nature is made by a God who... Um, didn't make it out of necessity, didn't make it because there was some lack in him that needed filling. He made it out of love and he is a good, intelligent creator. And so he made it with a certain internal order and inter- internal sense about it. Um, and there's two things that does for us. One, of, one is it allows us to anchor our, our ideas about morality and the actual design of the universe rather than just kind of making arbitrary appeals. Um, The other thing is that if we define nature as this fixed thing, then it's a thing that everybody encounters equally. And so it provides a basis for us to reason together with one another because we can both encounter this kind of fixed thing in front of us. But when we lose that sense and nature is just raw material that we can shape however we want, suddenly everything collapses down to power. This is the argument C.S. Lewis is making all over the place in his work, especially in *The Abolition of Man*.
0: Okay, so um, I think that first of all, that's a great summary. Um, if that was all that uh, that I knew about what you are telling us in *What Are Christians For? Life Together at the End of the World*, um, I would be I would be satisfied because you've you've drawn me to look at the way I look at the natural world. Um, And you have reminded me that I, you know, I live, I was born into a particular time and place and therefore what my day or, you know, the ideas of my day influence the way that I experience everything. Um, Mm -hmm. The natural world, the political world, relationships, I mean, all of it. And um, I think that this idea that Nature is just a bunch of raw material, Plato, and whoever has the power gets to shape it um and use it however they want um that is that is the worldview of a lot of people um mm-hmm. versus the Christian understanding of um nature, which I'm not sure Jake that everybody that everybody has uh, understood that God made it out of love. It's, an, it's out of the overflow of his love that mm-hmm. nature is what it is and the way it is. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, so the important thing, the, the doctrine I try to retrieve in the first chapter is called divine simplicity. And it's the idea that God is complete in himself. He doesn't have parts. Because um, if he had parts, like if one part of him was love and one part of him was wrath, then people could relate to God and they could kind of influence God. Well, in this moment, God's going to be wrathful. And in this moment, he's going to let his love side win, um, which makes God subject to outside forces, which makes him not God. Um, So the idea is, but then the question becomes, well, if God is complete in himself, why did he create anything? Because I think, and especially a lot of evangelical rhetoric can kind of slide into this in more sentimental ways we have of kind of talking about, Um, the incarnation and the crucifixion. But the idea is actually super comforting that God does not need you. And the reason that that's comforting is because it means that God didn't create because he needs you to fill up something that's lacking in Uh him. There's nothing lacking in him. He is perfectly complete, perfectly happy within himself. And he creates out of that love and out of a desire for others to be happy in him as well. So it's a very kind of counterintuitive idea, because at first it can sound like, well, if God doesn't need us, how is that good news for us? And It's like, no, actually, that means you like are the product of love rather than need um, and that's extremely good news
0: it's extremely good news. I am um recalling uh like you know tidbit it's been a while since I went to seminary, but I'm recalling a class um and I'm thinking it was Jonathan Edwards who talked about mm-hmm. the overflow that, that creation mm-hmm. is actually happens out of the overflow of God's love. Mm-hmm. So you probably much yeah. much no, more familiar with that than I am.
1: That's a, a lovely image. Um I actually was leaning more on a guy named John Webster, who only died a few years ago, but he was a theologian in the UK, um, whose work I kind of stumbled across and have just been very moved by. So he was love that most of who I was working from on that chapter. But Edwards would be another possible source for it.
0: So I want to um, I want to start digging into the conversation with you after a very, very brief break. Um, We're talking with Jake Metter. The book is What Are Christians For? Life Together at the End of the World. And just in case you think that this is just all heady theology where the rubber never meets the road, um, I'm going to ask Jake to reflect upon All of this in relationship to something taking place right now in his hometown of Lincoln, Nebraska, where the city council um, has uh, has uh, passed what what I think casually across the country would be called a bathroom bill. Um, And we're going to talk about why it's really not about that, why it's about so much more than that. And he's going to help us see how understanding, reclaiming, rediscovering, rerouting ourselves in nature Um, And in the love of God expressed in the reality of the natural world and who we are as a part of it helps us navigate the complex conversations of our day, including things like my town passed a bathroom bill. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen here on the Faith Radio Network. We're talking with Jake Metter. We're talking about his brand new book, What Are Christians For? Life Together at the End of the World. You can also check in with Jake at his website, MereOrthodoxy, M-E-R-E, MereOrthodoxy.com. Jake, I was listening to the president's State of the Union address. He is uh, compelling us forward in a conversation about the so-called Equality Act, um, the same conversation taking place in your hometown of Lincoln, Nebraska, where the city council passed a, quote, fairness ordinance. Um, this is related. This is like the rubber meets the road of your book and life uh, as we encounter it right now.
1: Yes. Yeah, I would agree.
0: So talk with us about um, how this conversation can't be reduced to... uh You know, who can use which bathroom? There are larger concerns um, at issue here. Can you help us see that?
1: Yeah. So another element of what happens when nature is not this thing that exists outside us, that is fixed, that we can, to some degree, access with our minds, um, you can't actually look toward nature to help you answer the question, who am I? Um, Because nature is infinitely malleable. So what we do is we have to look inside. And so what we have now is we have this idea of a kind of authentic self that resides inside each of us and the responsibility of our neighbors and of our place and our government and our businesses is to help that inner self express itself publicly. And so that's the kind of basis for what we have with a lot of these debates right now about LGBT plus stuff. So in Lincoln, we have a bill that it does cover the bathroom question, but it also, like it, the bill we have, um, would make speech that has the effect of giving offense subject to $10,000 fines. And it defines public accommodation in such a way that it is very unclear to me that a pastor standing in a pulpit would be protected. Like, I think a, on the plain meaning of the bill, or the ordinance, I think if my pastor stood in the pulpit and read Romans 1, we could be fined. Hmm. Um, It's it's an extremely broad, I I couldn't kind of, I was kind of skeptical when people were first worried about it. And then I read it for myself and I was like, oh my. Um, But so the challenge here is that um, you actually, particularly in the area of sex, it is so closely bound up with the natural world Um, that you can't actually maintain the kind of regime we have around sexual sexual orientation and gender identity right now, apart from big government and big business. You need governments to define how same-sex adoptions will work. You need governments to recognize same-sex marriages. You need technology to make surrogacy possible. Um, Now, as we turn to trans issues, you need technology to provide hormone treatments. You need technology to make the kind of um gender reassignment surgeries possible. Um, so because it touches something so core to who we are as human beings, sexuality in our bodies, um, it's not actually possible to align this kind of revolution with the natural world. The only way to promote this kind of revolution is through technologies and laws that allow us to treat the world as Plato and reshape it the way we want.
0: I was thinking as I was um, considering this, that the Christian worldview, the redemptive worldview, um, is this totalizing system. What I hear you or see you pointing to is if I do not understand the nature of nature itself, then the totalizing system um, of, let's say, an LGBTQ revolution that Mm -hmm. can then become my totalizing system. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I think particularly that question, because it's so core to who we are, it can't function as something less than a kind of totalizing understanding of the world. Mm. Um, And so... Yeah, like, I I think we see this happening a lot with the de-churching crisis we have on our hands now, is that we have tons of young people that haven't been catechized well, that don't know the faith. And something I say in the piece that you're kind of referencing here, um, if you read the, especially the church fathers on celibacy and virginity, they have a shockingly high view of it. Mm -hmm. Um, Ambrose of Milan, who my son is named after, he says in his treatise, on virginity, that um, celibate Christians are living in some way participating in the life of heaven now because they're satisfying themselves in God rather than in nature. And so the way that it ought to work if you're not married as a Christian is you're actually in some sense bringing the life of heaven to earth through your unique dependence upon God. And so you're kind of almost elevating nature closer to grace, you could say, if that's not too strong. And so it's really striking, you could almost say that we have a chronological struggle here. Are we pulling nature backwards and unmaking it? Or are we trying to draw nature toward grace, which restores it? So it's a huge question, Um, but it also suggests that there's an extremely high calling for Christians who do not pursue marriage. And yet virtually none of the young people in our churches are gonna hear that kind of thing. They're going to hear kind of the evangelical arms, sexual arms race sort of thing, where we try to prove that our sex lives are as good as anybody else's. Um, And the witness of the early church is that sex is not necessary for the good life. Um, And I think as happened in the early church, that's actually an incredibly liberating thing to say. Um, But we don't want to say that. And so we end up in this place where we have lots of young people who have been told for years that they can't have a good life without sex. And then they find that their kind of internal struggles with their sexual identity become very, very difficult and very painful. And the only thing that they know is to go with the sexual revolution on these things because they have no idea that the church has anything to say to them other than abstain, 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 be lonely for the rest of your life. And so on, and the church has so much more to say than that, but we don't tell people about it,
0: and we don't, um, ma- and we don't manifest it. We don't manifest yes. the Christian life together as the kind of household of faith, community of believers, right. rich relationships um, that are intergenerational, and uh, we mm-hmm. we don't we don't walk around like uh, like an entourage of Jesus in you know in the current. Uh, context of life. And so I think that people want Relationships, they want community, and the church is failing to be the church in that way, in mm-hmm. the culture. I, Jake, the things that you're talking about are so helpful. I thought that the piece um, at Mere Orthodoxy um, on this topic, the culture war comes home, is just so good. So let me direct people there. Mere Orthodoxy again, M E R E Orthodoxy dot com. The book is also excellent, but it's a heavy lift. I mean, there's there's a lot of meat on the bone here. What are Christians for? Life together at the end of the world. Jake, what a, a privilege and a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. This is so, great. So good. That's uh that's Jake Metter. Don't miss what he's writing. Mirrororthodoxy.com. We'll be right back. So, uh, I'm Carmen Leberge. I am the host of this program. For those of you maybe just tuning in and just joining us, and uh, we broadcast out of the University of Northwestern St. Paul, which is in St. Paul, Minnesota. Where, come to find out there's still snow on the ground.
1: Lots of snow on, <laughs> on the ground. Yes.
0: So so uh, because I, I live actually in the middle of the country, um, just west of Nashville, Tennessee, um, where there's not snow on the ground. Uh, in fact, the grass is already greening up where I live. Um, the buds on our pear tree are about to burst forth. Like we're right on the verge. The daffodils are up where I live. And so I confess, I just confess that I had lost sight of just how much snow there is um, in some places. So, um, so I confess that. So here is the Friday farm report for those of you uh, wondering what is happening. The chickens are now each laying an egg every day because we have apparently returned to the time where they're getting enough uh, light So there you go. For those of you not familiar with this particular uh, reality of the laying hen, she has to have 14 hours of light in order to lay an egg. And so, you know, in the winter, she may only get seven hours of light a day, which means she's only going to lay an egg every other day. Well, hey, where I live, chickens laying an egg every day. I am hoping that that brings down the cost of the eggs. There you go. That's what I'm I'm just holding out hope. That inflationary pressure, particularly in the egg market, is about to come down because spring is, well, springing. Hey, March 4th today, March 4th as an advocate of the gospel. Be a living demonstration of, of the reality of the kingdom of God in the midst of the kingdoms of this world. That is who we are, the ambassadors of Jesus Christ. Let us go forth. Have a great day. God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio.